You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. This week, I'm speaking with Sasha Connor about how to lead distributed, hybrid, and remote teams. That is, teams where every member is not always in the same place. And spoiler alert, your team is probably one of them. I'm excited for our early career listeners to hear about ways to improve their influence and build their network and grow their exposure when you're remote or maybe not in person or you're working with people and teams all over the place. We're behind these virtual curtains that we need to be really intentional about how we work together. And it's equally important to learn how to connect personally, not just transactionally with your team members across distance. Sasha is a thought leader on all aspects of remote and hybrid work. And her expertise was forged in fire She pioneered remote work at the Clorox company, working remotely in marketing there for eight years, and she was the first fully remote member of the leadership team of a billion-dollar division. The company she founded, Virtual Work Insider, has counseled companies from Toyota to L'Oreal on how to optimize remote and hybrid work and foster distributed team success. They've also helped Udemy create our Invested Leader program, where Sasha herself is an instructor. Sasha, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Alan. Great. So three years ago, we were all forced to go fully remote because of the pandemic and lockdowns. And over the past year, with the pandemic mostly behind us, there's this big push to get people back in the office. Does the return to office push mean that remote and hybrid work are done? Are we back to the old normal? Absolutely not. So I'll, I'll start off by saying, you know, each company and each organization is defining their workforce and workplace strategy a little differently. So there's a range of structures that you probably have heard in the news from hybrid structured, which is providing that that stricter guidance on which days of the week each employee needs to be in their local office. And and that's what you're seeing most of the coverage about in the news media right now. But there's also hybrid flex where there's more flexible guidelines in terms of the amount of in-office time. And then you might hear terms like work from anywhere and remote first and virtual first. So determining those work strategies are really complex decision-making processes. You know, each company is taking into account a lot of factors in terms of the industry that they're in, the type of work that they're doing, what their employees are asking for, what their company values are, their real estate investments, and so much more. But no matter how much a company decides that its teams need to be in a certain office together at a certain time, we need to be operating with a virtual first mindset, meaning that you need to assume that you are still gonna be working across distance with your teams and your key stakeholders on a regular basis. You know, oftentimes a choice to increase in office days is based on this faulty premise that innovation, collaboration, mentorship, and personal connection can only be done in person. 
And the reality of the situation is that even when people come into an office a few days of a week, they are still working with people across other locations. And this was true even before the pandemic. Yeah. So does everybody have a virtual first mindset or is that something that's difficult and new? Yeah, so this is new. Oftentimes I get asked the question on how can I entice people to come to the office more? And instead, I think the better question to ask is how can we better equip our employees to work together regardless of where people are located on any given day, which is is related to that virtual first mindset. And this is related to an emerging expectation of employees to become what I call omnimodal leaders. And what I mean by an omnimodal leader is that you're going to need to know how to be equally successful with communicating and collaborating, influencing and building relationships, whether you're in a fully in-person group, in a hybrid environment, or a fully remote group. And you are going to need to be able to seamlessly switch between these multiple modes, even within the same day. Yeah. So let me take it back to before the pandemic. There's a famed Harvard professor, Richard Hagman, said, most teams, four out of five teams never reach their potential. And he had a quote that I love, that I have no question that a team can generate magic, but don't count on it. And this is from long ago. So it's always been hard to make the output of teams greater than the sum of their parts. And now we come to today, and I've seen Capgemini, McKinsey, Gallup, they've all published studies that found that a majority of leaders don't know how to engage and inspire remote or hybrid teams. So we see that it was a problem. It was always hard. Now it's harder. And so what, in your view, makes a good distributed team? Right. So let's talk about team first, because that word team can mean so many different things. So this could mean a people manager working with your direct reports. This could mean a cross-functional team working together across a project. There's so many different examples of what a distributed team could mean. And I think that the skills that we just talked about in terms of that omnimodal leadership is so important in all of those teams. So creating the ability to connect with your team members, to coach your team members, to create a location-inclusive environment with your team members. What's a location-inclusive environment? I've heard you talk about it before, but maybe a lot of our listeners have not. Yeah, so that's thinking about how can we make sure that we are including people from all locations in every aspect of the work that we're doing. So prior to the pandemic, most organizations thought of their headquarters location as that center of gravity. That's where all the power set. That's where all the access to information, access to key stakeholders, access to important roles within the company. We're all focused on that headquarters. So now we have the chance to reset this mindset, to think about how do we provide equal access to information, to roles, to opportunities, regardless of where people live or work from. That could mean giving equal access from um, headquarters to even just some local offices, or that could mean creating equal access to those that are working fully remotely. So how did you figure all that out? We didn't get your backstory at Clorox, but I've got to imagine that you had a big headquarters and you find yourself in a remote situation and nobody thought about any of this stuff. How many years ago? 12? 
Yes. So this was now back in 2010 when I first went remote. So, you know, I've had a long career leading enterprise teams. I, I first started working at ad agencies and account management. And then I spent 14 years at the Clorox company, which is headquartered in Oakland, California. And while I was at Clorox, I led large marketing teams, sales teams, new product innovation teams on many of the brands that many of you have probably used in your daily life. And as you are alluding to, Alan, you know, my remote work story started way back in 2010. I had been working at Clorox in that San Francisco Bay Area headquarters for six years when my husband and I had our first child. Our daughter, Nevin, was born when we lived in San Francisco, but my family and my husband's family lived in the Philadelphia area and we wanted her to grow up near her grandparents. So that prompted me to ask a bold question to Clorox, which was, could I keep my job but do it from the opposite coast of the United States? And in 2010, it was unheard of not to work from headquarters in the type of role that I had, which was leading large new product innovation teams. But I had a good relationship with the chief marketing officer, and he said, okay, you can be an experiment, an experiment to see if I could do my job and lead my teams from 3,000 miles and three time zones away. So one Friday in 2010, I was working from the Oakland headquarters, and by the next Monday, I was working from a card table in an extra room at my grandmother's house in the suburbs of Philadelphia. Wow. And what had started out as an experiment turned into eight years of me leading large hybrid and distributed teams while I was working remotely from my home office here in Philly. And, you know, it's hard. Like <laughs> I have had so many successes and screw ups through that time that I that I've learned from in terms of you know how do you lead across distance? Yeah, well, I was just picturing when you said a location inclusive environment. I was imagining 2010. There was just no concept of that at all. I can imagine when you moved 3,000 miles away and started to try to be in meetings. You're probably in like a bad version of WebEx or go to meeting and can't see anybody in the room. <laughs> right. I mean, if you think about how different the technology tools were back then, we had an early version of WebEx called Movi. And there were so many rooms that didn't have the the video conferencing technology. So I would used to have somebody who was on my team carry me around on a laptop <laughs> and put me down in front of the key stakeholder or the decision maker that I would need to present in front of. So so you paved the way for many of us figuring out these things, and now you advise companies. What are some of the challenges or biases, the things that get in the way for the leader as they adapt to this new hybrid workplace? Yeah, a big aha for me when I was leading those hybrid and remote teams while I was at Clorox was when I learned about the two unconscious biases that can happen, especially in a hybrid and remote environment. So the first one is distance bias, which is also known as proximity bias. And this is our brain's natural tendency to put more importance on the people and things that are closer to us than those that are farther away. And then there's its close cousin, which is recency bias, which is our brain's natural tendency to put more value on the people and things that we've heard from or seen most recently. So let's do a quick exercise with our listeners to illustrate this. So I want the listeners to think about this scenario. You need to ask someone for help on your most important project. Who do you ask? Who comes to mind? Don't overthink it. Now, is the first person you thought of one of the last people that you've heard from or seen? And when I do this exercise with groups, the vast majority say yes. So how do we overcome proximity bias and recency bias? 
So one, one initial exercise that I recommend to, to help overcome some of these biases is for teammates to work together to map out the anatomy of their team. So the first step is to literally map out the location of where each person on the team usually works from. Now, that could include your direct reports, your manager, cross-functional teammates. And you can, on this map, show different icons in terms of who is fully remote, who is hybrid, what offices the hybrid people are going into, because often these teams are even spread across different office sites. And then for those that are hybrid, you want to capture what days of the week people are coming into their assigned office. And this may seem really simple, but as I've worked with so many teams, I've realized that so few teams actually have taken the time to understand this anatomy of their team or talk about the insights or the implications from what they might find. Like you may expect that a people manager would know where their direct reports are. But when you're working across functional teams, I've come to uncover that many of them don't even realize that their team members are working in different time zones. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I speak to a lot of Udemy customers and to a lot of people at different conferences. And on this particular topic, the thing that the biggest complaint I've heard about returning to office is people say it adds all this time commuting and all the sort of friction but then they get there and they, everybody's remote anyway. Is that a legitimate gripe? And is part of what you're describing, like the anatomy of a team, does it help solve for that? Yes, because you're having intentional conversations. So it, it creates some data to actually talk about what the implications are for how we want to work together. Because what you might uncover by doing this exercise is, wow, if I come into the office, I'm actually not co-located with anybody on my team. Perhaps it is better off for me to stay virtual until we have a full offsite together when everybody flies in and spend a week together building personal connections or doing some deep work sessions. How do leaders help foster working in more effective distributed teams? Right. So with, you know, additional flexibility comes additional complexity. And we hear a lot about how overall employee engagement is low and how it's been really difficult to improve that engagement. So ADP does this annual study that I love about employee engagement and you know, employees that are on a team 17% are fully engaged, which is not a great number, but that number goes up to 46% fully engaged for employees that are on a team and have deep trust in their team leader. And the study defines deep trust as the direct report knows what is expected of them from their manager, and the manager can play to that team member's strengths. So back to setting expectations is really important, especially when we're working across distance. We're behind these virtual curtains that we need to be really intentional about how we work together. And that can be really hard at first, especially, you know, there are so many managers who, who may have not even met some of their direct reports in person before. So, you know, one of the things to kickstart a relationship that is really great is to find a time to come together in person. You know, that can go a long way in building that trust and showing some vulnerability at first. I know that not all teams and companies have the budget to allow for that, but that is something to consider in terms of what are some of those in-person touch points that you can have. But aside from that, you know, making sure that you're asking questions of your team members around what do they see as their strengths? What are the areas where you know they really shine? How can you personalize the work to make sure that they are getting work that really actually adds to the strengths that they show and helps build on the areas where they want to continue to grow. Yep. I love it. So many of our listeners 
are people who aspire to become a leader in the future. So what can we do, somebody right now that's an aspiring future leader, to help make sure their distributed teams work more effectively? How do they strengthen relationships with peers or with their boss in this remote environment or hybrid environment? Yeah, let's talk about that relationship between that direct report and their manager. You know, when direct reports and managers aren't co-located every day, uh, it can be really difficult to ensure that they're on the same page and that the direct report is getting the help that they need when they need it. And for that direct report to be successful, they need to really understand what they're being asked to do by their manager and by when, and be aware of what processes and tools and other people that can help them. And when we're working together in person, after a manager assigns a team member a project, they're they're more apt to pick up on early cues about where their team member might be getting off track and help course correct early. But when we're working across distance, we need to be a lot more intentional about staying on the same page. So a tool that I recommend for managers and direct reports to use is something called an assignment brief. And the idea is that after assigning work to a direct report, that direct report then spends 15 minutes recapping and writing what they heard the manager asking them to do. Then the manager reviews the assignment brief to agree that, in fact, that is what they were asking for. You know, we probably have all left meetings where we had like a completely different take on what we were being asked to do, right? So this assignment brief helps to create alignment and shared context. So back to expectation setting, this is a really important step that a direct report can take control of to make sure that we're embedding this opportunity for the manager to get on the same page as the direct report and be able to you know, take a peek behind that curtain to determine if a team member is on track or if help is needed. Yeah, I love it. So one of my favorite concepts is just the concept of dialogue from the Latin roots dialogos, which roughly translates into shared meaning flowing through a group. And when you describe the assignment brief, that's what's going through my head. I think that's beautiful. And many of these things, Sasha, are all things that we go much deeper on in the Invested Leader Program too, right? With the tools and all that. So there's a lot of cool stuff here that I think people could unpack if they want to go deeper. Yeah, absolutely. Even in the Invested Leader Program, we provide a template for this brief that's customizable as well to give you not just the techniques, but the tools to go try this out with your team. Yep. Yep. I love it. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now. So, Going back to this return to office, there's there's a ton of stuff. I probably see something at least once a day where the executives want more in office days and the employees are pushing back. So wh- why do you think employees are pushing back and what is it that they actually want? So a key takeaway is that the future of work is not just about location flexibility. Employees want time flexibility even more. 
So there's research from the Future Forum that's been tracking this for the past couple of years, and it consistently shows that 81% of people want flexibility in where they work, and 93% want flexibility when they work. So providing employees with flexibility where and when they work is critical for employee engagement and retention. So if I'm a manager, how do I make sure my team can make time flexibility work? Yeah, so I'm continuously hearing from people across industries that they're really struggling with meeting fatigue and communication overload and bouncing from meeting to meeting all day long with no time to get individual work done until after hours or on the weekend and getting pinged and dinged from all sides through emails and direct messages and having too many communication tools to check and not knowing where to find information. And when you're suffering from these things, it means that you don't have time flexibility. It means that you're always on and you're constantly blurring the lines between work and personal time. So this is because most organizations rely really heavily on synchronous communication to get work done. So synchronous communication means communicating live with another person expecting a real-time response. So typically video meetings or phone calls. And then there's asynchronous communication, which means not expecting a real-time response, like using email or chat in Microsoft Teams or Slack. Creating a better balance of sync and asynchronous communication can create more time flexibility because asynchronous communication creates a level playing field across work schedules, locations, time zones, by allowing people to complete work and respond to communication when it best meets their schedule needs while still being able to meet deadlines and achieve business objectives. But to do this, it requires team members to learn how to document information succinctly in shared digital communication tools. And it means replacing synchronous meetings with asynchronous communication. And this is a huge behavior change. Yeah, this seems like a very large behavior change. Where where are we at in the call to maturity curve? Are companies dabbling in this now? Or are there companies that you see that are are cranking away and have figured this out and just wondering where are we on the evolution? We are really low on the maturity curve here, especially for large legacy enterprises. So the companies that are on the kind of cutting edge of asynchronous communications are those companies that started out as fully remote companies that have learned because they were forced to be working across time zones and locations to actually embed asynchronous communication into their DNA. And so as I'm working with many large, longstanding organizations, this even the word asynchronous is completely new to them. So we have to start out by just defining it and starting to have conversations around how do we adjust our rituals and our communication norms. So one of the many steps after doing that mapping exercise is uh, teams really benefit from creating a team working agreement. And so this is something where teams can work together to codify their norms around what meetings still need to be held for live synchronous interaction and what new rituals can be put into place for asynchronous communication. So oftentimes when we're working with teams, we'll do some observations of their current meetings and we'll realize that in so many of the meetings, they're just about FYIs and updates. And so what we work with the teams on is stripping out 
those topics into self-serve type rituals. So where can there be a dashboard? Where can there be using Microsoft Teams or Slack areas where people can self-serve getting updated information instead of having to schedule time to provide those updates? So one of the things I've heard is everybody has adopted Slack or Teams or Zoom. They're doing all this but they haven't really gone back and audited their meetings. So they still do all the meetings and now they're doing twice as much work and people are burning out. You must be seeing that every day. Is that something you're dealing with? Yeah, every day. So just meeting overwhelm. And there's some great research that was done recently by Otter AI and a professor out of UNC Charlotte who that said that employees report that 30% of meetings could have been skipped as long as they were kept in the loop and that they want to decline 31% of meetings, but they actually only declined 14 and what to me was really interesting was that the research showed that people managers actually can have a really big role in, in improving the situation by providing proactive permission to decline meetings. Because 88% of employees agreed that they would decline a meeting if their manager explicitly told them it was okay. And so there's this meeting hygiene aspect in terms of thinking about what is the real intended outcome that I'm looking for from the meeting? And if I have to have the meeting, am I inviting the smallest group of the right people to be there? Because we see a lot of over-inviting in terms of you know covering all aspects, not leaving anybody out. But what then happens is that people are attending out of feeling that they need to attend and feeling too polite to decline. And then you get into this cycle of too many meetings. Yeah, I like it. You call it meeting hygiene. So that's worthy of yet another topic for the team norms to figure out how are we going to do this in a way that works for everybody or that we all feel we can be at our best to be most effective as a team. Am I oversimplifying by saying that you believe asynchronous communications should be focused on and increased as a way that then reduces synchronous? Is it that simple? Yes, I think that the balance of synchronous to asynchronous will be different for every team, depending on the type of work that they do and where they are in that maturity curve. But I do believe there needs to be aspects of both in how each team works. So my background is in a highly creative field. So I was in charge of new product innovation and marketing teams. And as you can imagine, I've been in thousands of hours of brainstorming sessions but when I went remote, I had to learn how to do brainstorms differently because I couldn't get in a room with sticky notes with my whole team. So we started doing synchronous virtual brainstorming. So this I'm now talking, you know, 10 years ago where we didn't have Mural and Miro and some of the cool tools that we have right now. But one of the areas where you can start to push is actually thinking about those brainstorming innovation sessions as starting out asynchronous. There's actually research that shows that you can get to more ideas and better ideas if you have an asynchronous component to the brainstorming, then converging, then getting together, talking about the different ideas and building upon them. So like I said, every team can actually incorporate an aspect of asynchronous. Yeah, it does seem that simple. Switching gears, I heard you talk before about building influence. And I wanted to think about this through the lens of like you've had to do it, but other individual contributors, you talked about the relationship with the manager and the direct report, but like what can people do when they work remotely or hybridly 
to be seen, to stand out, to get noticed, to improve their influence. I think it is so important to consider how to become and stay visible while virtual, especially because of some of the topics we've talked about already in terms of those unconscious biases, the distance bias and recency bias, and how it can feel like you're working from behind those virtual curtains. And learning how to influence across distance and build exposure while remote was the most important and the hardest skill for me to learn when I first went remote back in 2010. And I was even at a senior leader level when I went remote. And I wasn't new to the company either. So I can imagine a lot of people who are early career employees or new to companies, right? This, This feels really difficult. So let's first dig into what it means to have influence and what it means to build exposure. So I really like this this definition of influence, which is the ability to motivate and inspire others to take action. And it's the distinguishing factor between a leader and a manager. And the best leaders are those who can successfully influence up, down, across, inside and outside the organization to impact business results. And then there's the component of exposure, meaning who knows about you and what you do to others inside and outside of your organization know anything about you. So there's longstanding research from Harvey Coleman that has shown that exposure accounts for 60% of career success, which is much higher than just your performance, which only accounts for 10% of career success. So to have influence and to create exposure when you're working in a hybrid or, or distributed or remote environment, you need to adjust your behaviors to account for distance. You're going to need to create a strategic, intentional approach to build your influence, to build your exposure ongoing and across distance, because you cannot rely on those in-person serendipitous interactions. If there was one mega theme I've heard on leading up with, we've had so many great senior leaders and deep researchers and scholars, the idea of building networks has been a very solid thread through everyone, right? And building influence. And I think ultimately this is so much more difficult in a remote world. It used to be that you started your career and you learned by watching everybody else, the kind of these sociocultural norms and those are gone for a whole generation of people that are struggling to figure that out. So I imagine you see the belonging and the connection. How difficult is that in this new world? Yeah, this is such an important skill that I created a five-step program that we've provided actually to thousands of learners for how to create your own personal virtual influence and exposure plan. And we can talk today about, you know, step one in that plan, because I think it's something that your listeners can can do right now, which is determine who you need to influence or gain exposure to. Because as you said, you know, building that network, building those connections is so important, but you need to start with who it is that you're trying to build those connections with. So the first step is to map out your sphere of influence or the, the sphere of the people that you want to gain exposure to. So really just on a piece of paper, just spend five minutes sketching out all the different people that you need to influence or gain exposure to up, down, across, inside, outside of your organization. And usually what I hear after people do this exercise is, wow, that is a big, hairy map. <laughs> You know, they say, I knew I had a lot of stakeholders, but I didn't realize how many until I wrote it down. 
And what's really important to know, too, is as you're mapping out this sphere of influence, you can only map out your known network. This is where you're going to need some help from other people to build out your unknown network. This is where I recommend you use your manager, your senior leaders, and peers to find out who you should get introduced to based on your own career aspirations and your business goals. And if you're looking at the big hairy map, you're going to need to prioritize, right? So I would say just start by picking two stakeholders that you need to build an influence plan or want to gain exposure to because it's a muscle that you need to build. So once you you know, start to try out some techniques for how to build influence there, then you can go back to the map and build out a plan for other people. I love it. A simple step, the influence and exposure plan, pick one or two people and start getting after it and engage your manager. Yep. And since we don't have time today to go deeper into all of those steps, I've provided a special learning aid that listeners can download to go through the additional steps of developing that personal influence and exposure plan. So listeners just need to go to virtualworkinsider.com forward slash leading up. And I know we'll include a link in the show notes as well. Yep. Yep. Thank you for that, Sasha. So we've talked a lot about how to do distributed work better, but I want to close on our why. Why should we care about doing distributed or hybrid work better? Well, there's one piece of information I want to share that was an interesting phenomenon that we observed during pandemic remote work. And so Microsoft did an analysis of over 100 billion email interactions and 2 billion meeting interactions. And they found that with the move to remote work, there was a significant increase in the number of interactions within close networks so members of our immediate team. And there was a significant weakening in the number of interactions between more distant networks. So think about your cross-functional teams, different divisions, different regions. And why this is problematic is that those distant networks are important for innovation, problem solving. They bring a diversity of thought to the work that you're doing. Those might be people that you need in to influence for decision making. Those might be people you need exposure to for your career progression as well. So we want to think about how do we not just keep those close network interactions strong, but how do we also strengthen our interactions and our network with those more distant networks? So I'll just give you one last tip here. You know, if you're working in a hybrid environment, I'm going to give you what may seem like some counterintuitive advice, which is during your in-office days, think about seeking out connection with people from other functions, other levels, other groups to expand your network, which will also expand your influence and your exposure. Thinking about who, who can I get to meet in person when I'm in my in-office days as a hybrid worker, or if you're fully remote also thinking about making sure that you're prioritizing creating those intersections, even virtually, with people in your extended network. Yeah, so strengthen that extended network, whether you're in the office with people that you don't normally bump into every day, and if you're remote, the people that are remote that you're also not normally bumping into. So as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all of our guests and that is, what are you curious about and learning now? How to parent teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That is a Pandora's box of things to unpack and learn, Sasha. I do wish you the best of luck. I have been there and done that. Yes, wish me luck. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Sasha Connor for joining us today on the podcast. 
you can find a free resource on building influence, which Sasha and her team have put together just for Leading Up listeners in the show notes. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard.